Thank you for listening to the podcast of Bible Baptist Church. Please visit our website at www.southbaybbc.org for more information. We're here together on Sunday morning as we always do, but of course today being Mother's Day, we have a special opportunity to celebrate godly mothers because godly mothers deserve celebration and recognition. And if you're familiar with the life of Ruth, you'll know that you know, we just read it, of course, as well. Here in chapter 4 is when she actually becomes a mother. And uh, there is not a lot of record of her in terms of her actual mothering, but I think as we take a look through the entirety of the book, you can see what kind of individual that Ruth was and also what kind of mother that she was. So I want to take a look at a few character traits that we see in Ruth Uh, that we also see, I believe, in godly mothers. The first of which, the first reason that we celebrate godly mothers is that godly mothers are overcoming conquerors. So if you go all the way back to verse number one, we have to begin with this introduction to Ruth just to see where she came from to get to all the way towards the end of the book in chapter four, where she ended up. So we're going to go back to chapter 1, verse number 1. In verse number 1, we actually begin with a different family. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. So here's a family of four, father and mother and two boys, two sons. And the name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons, Malon and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem, Judah. And they came into the country of Moab and continued there. And Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. And they took them wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they dwelt there, or they dwelled there about 10 years. So here's the situation. There was a a famine there in the land of Israel. And this family decided maybe what is best for us is to leave the promised land and to go into the land of Moab. We heard that things are better in the land of Moab. Why don't we go over there? So they go to the land of Moab. But the father, over the course of time, passes away there in Moab. So now it is Naomi, now a widow, left with her two sons. And they lived there about 10 years. Verse number 5. And Malon and Chilion died also, both of them, and the woman was left of her two sons and her husband. So you see the situation here. This family has left Israel. His Israelite family left Israel, went to Moab, And as they were living there, the father passes away, and then they marry off the two boys, all right? And their wives are Orpah and Ruth. And then those two boys also die. So here's the family situation now. You have Naomi, who is a widow. She is left without her husband and left without her boys. But then also consider the life of Ruth, where she gets married to this man. And then soon, as she's still a young woman, is now a widow. Her husband tragically passes away. What a tragedy for her in her early life, 
that is something that she had to overcome. She's still not a mother yet, doesn't have any children yet, but early on already suffering some tragedy. Consider moving forward. Verse number eight, And Naomi said unto her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as ye have dealt with the dead and with me. So in verse number seven, they, she decides, I'm going to go back to Israel. She packs up all of her things, plans on going back to Israel. And as they are on the way, they've begun their journey. She turns to her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, and says, why don't you just go back home? I mean, this is the land where you're from. This is where your family is. This is where your friends are. This is the, the land that you're familiar with, the culture that you're comfortable with. And, but as we'll see, Ruth decides to follow Naomi. She decides to continue to go into the land of Israel. Now, maybe living in a day like today, it's not quite as, um, you know, we might not relate quite as well because, you know, we have, uh, we can always phone home and call mom or dad, you know, and that's the plan for, for me and my wife. We always try to call on Mother's Day and call our moms and and uh, you have these uh, video chatting, you can see their faces and talk with them. You have these, you know, group chats with your friends back home. You have social media, you share pictures and, and all of these different sorts of things. You can keep up with your friends and family and people that you know back home. But when Ruth decides to leave Moab, she's really leaving everything behind. There's no way to contact her mom, no way to contact her dad, no way to contact her, her siblings, her friends, the people that she knew. Uh, there, there's no way that she would be able to continue to have and build and keep those relationships. She was really leaving those things behind in order to follow Naomi. And you actually see some reference to this in chapter number two in verse number 11. She's there in the land of Israel. And she's talking to Boaz, who will be a major player character here in this story. And Boaz answered and said unto her, It hath fully been showed me all that thou hast done unto thy mother-in-law since the death of thine husband, and how thou hast left thy father and thy mother and the land of thy nativity, and art come unto a people which thou knowest not heretofore." Boaz recognizes, wow, for you to have left your land by yourself, essentially, with your mother-in-law, but essentially by yourself coming to this land, it means you left your mom, you had to leave your dad, you had to leave your family, you had to leave your friends, you had to leave everything behind in order to come here. And that, of course, would be something that is very difficult, very hard for somebody to make that kind of commitment to leave those family relationships behind, certainly something that she had to overcome. Now, she was determined to do it, and we'll see why in just a few moments, but we also see another situation here in her life that she had to overcome. In verse number 10 of chapter 2, she is there in the field of Boaz, and she's laboring there in the field, and Boaz comes to her and gives her some kind words and she says in verse number 10, Then she fell on her face and bowed herself to the ground and said unto him, Why have I found grace in thine eyes that thou shouldest take knowledge of me, seeing I am a stranger? See, she was familiar with the customs of the day, which was essentially if you were an outsider, you were an outsider. And if you were from Moab moving into the land of Israel, you were not one of them. You were not one of 
the family, not one of the individuals that grew up there. You were not an Israelite. And, and so she's coming in from the outside as a Moabite, coming into this land, I'm sure understanding some of the ramifications of that. In Ruth chapter number four, in verse number one, we see kind of towards this culmination of Boaz's going to uh, eventually marry Ruth, but there's a, a, an order according to the law of God of how things should be. Uh, if, a, if a woman were to be widowed, then one of the siblings, one of the brothers, were to take her in and essentially to marry her, take care of her and the family and the lineage. And in verse number one, it says, Then went Boaz up to the gate and sat uh, him down there. And behold, the kinsman of whom Boaz spake came by, unto whom he said, Ho, oh, such a one, turn aside, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit, down, sit ye down here, and they sat down. And he said unto the kinsman, Naomi, that is come again out of the country of Moab, selleth a parcel of land, which was our brother Elimelech's. And I thought to advertise thee, saying, buy it before the inhabitants and before the elders of my people. If thou wilt redeem it, redeem it. But if thou wilt not redeem it, then tell me that I may know, for there is none to redeem it beside thee, and I am after thee. And he said, I will redeem it. So Elimelech had his own land in the land of Israel. It had been obviously laying dormant for 10 years. But now that the family is back, now they have to figure out what to do. There's nobody there. There's no sons to take care of the land, to cultivate it, to grow, to support the family. And so somebody in the, in the family, some relative, is to purchase the land and basically raise it and use it for, for that, that family, for Naomi and her, her daughter-in-law and eventually the family there. But there's a sequence of who is the closest relative. They were to go in order. And so Boaz is here thinking, you know what? I would love to have the land. I would love to marry Ruth. But there's somebody who is in front of me in line. There's somebody at the front of the line. I am second in line. And so he goes to where the business matters would take place there in the gate. And he, and he sees this man. He says, hey, come over here. We, uh, I have some uh, business to do with you. I just want to let you know about the situation. He gathers some of the elders. They will be witnesses to what would partake of or what would happen there. And he says, okay, all right. He says, uh, here's the land. Elimelech, you know Elimelech. Uh, his wife is now widow, is back. But, you know, the, we got to figure out what to do here. And you're the first in line. Would you like to redeem the land? And he said, yes, I will redeem it. Verse number five, then said Boaz, what day thou buyest the field of the hand of Naomi, thou must buy it also of Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance. So this is where you see that kind of culture of a widow didn't really have any ways of supporting herself. You know, it was mostly farming, and so it was not really able for her to do that. And so a family, a relative basically is to take her in and to support her and basically uh, to bring her into his family and raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance. And the kinsman said, I cannot redeem it for myself. He changes his mind. He says, you know what? I want the land. And he says, you know what? Never mind. Why? Lest I mar mine own inheritance. You know what he's saying? This Ruth is a Moabite, and I don't want to bring a Moabite into my family. You know what? Never mind. You, somebody else can have the land if somebody else will take Ruth. I mean, that's the kind of cultural way that they thought. Redeem thou my right to thyself. 
I cannot redeem it. I mean, that's the kind of land that she's going into. And you can think and imagine and understand that maybe Naomi, if she were wise, maybe had a conversation with Ruth and let her know, hey, I mean, just so you're aware, this is what is happening. This is the way that this is their customs. This is, you know, you really want to come. You really want to go to the land of Israel? And she committed herself and she went. And we'll see that the Lord blesses her in many ways, but I think it's true that every godly mother has had hurdles to overcome. There are no smooth paths to mothering, and everybody has their own trials and difficulties to overcome, whether it's in their family, whether it's in their personal life, whether it's financial, whether it's their health, whether it's all sorts of different things. We praise the Lord for every godly mother, for they have had to overcome. And I believe that that is worth celebrating and recognizing. Secondly, we see that godly mothers have overlooked characteristics. See, in the world and culture in which we live, we see the celebration of things like power, success, and wealth. Right? When you think about the books that are written, when you think about the magazines that are published and, and things that are uplifted in society, so oftentimes the people that you see and the names that are mentioned are of those that are in power, those that have wealth, and those that are successful. And these are some characteristics that you see. You think of politicians, you think of businessmen, you think of those that have reached the highest echelon of success in their field, but the traits of godly mothers are not so often celebrated. You will see lists like the wealthiest people in America or the most influential people under 30 years old. But I think when you take a look at many of the character traits here in Ruth, I think you'll see some traits that are not often listed in Forbes magazine or People magazine or in the books that are written and I think that's one of the reasons why Mother's Day is so wonderful. We get a time to just focus in on the wonderful traits of godly mothers. We're going to take a look at some of these traits in Ruth. The first of which was she was steadfastly loyal. In verse number 9 of chapter 1, we're going to back up a little bit. We made reference to this already, but let's, let's read this in full. In verse number nine, the Bible says that Naomi is saying to her two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah, the Lord grant you that ye may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voice and wept. And they said unto her, surely we will, turn, we will return with thee unto thy people. Hey, we're, no, we're, we're going to follow you. And Naomi said, turn again, my daughters, why will you go with me? Are there yet any more sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn again, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, if I should have a husband also tonight and should also bear sons, would you tarry for them till they were grown? Would you stay for them having husbands? Nay, my daughters, for it grieveth me much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord is gone out against me. And they lifted up their voice and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clave unto her. So Naomi is explaining this whole, this, this is the custom and this is what's going to happen. And uh, I mean, what, there, there's nobody here for you to marry. There are no husbands. Why don't you just go back home? You can find a husband back home. You can just move on with your life. And they said, no, we're going to go. And she said, no, this is the situation. And Orpah says, you know what? Maybe that is the thing that I ought to do. She kisses her mother-in-law and she turns and she goes back home to her family. 
But the Bible says that Ruth clave unto her. And she said, Naomi said, Behold, thy sister-in-law is gone back unto her people and unto her gods. Return thou after thy sister-in-law. Why don't you just go back home with your, with, with your other sister-in-law? And Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee. Please don't ask me to leave you or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go. And where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people and thy God, my God. Where thou diest, will I die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. What a statement by Ruth. I mean, consider what she's committing herself to in this moment. She's saying, don't ask me to leave. I am going with you. And your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you are buried is where I will be buried. I will go with you. And she said, well, she's not leaving. Verse 18, and when she saw that she was steadfastly minded to go with her, then she left speaking unto her. She had fully committed herself to following Naomi. What a wonderful trait of loyalty that Ruth demonstrates early on. If you continue in verse number 19, now we pick up the story, they're back in Israel. So they too went until they came to Bethlehem, and it came to pass when they were come to Bethlehem that all the city was moved about them, and they said, is this Naomi? It's been 10 years. Hey, look, is that, is that Naomi? And she said unto them, call me not Naomi, call me Mara, that means bitter, for the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord hath brought me home again empty. Why then call ye me Naomi, seeing the Lord hath testified against me, and the Lord hath afflicted me? Now, here is Naomi. Imagine her and Ruth coming back into town, and everybody is just out living their lives, and suddenly they see Naomi, and they say, Hey, is that, is that Naomi? That looks like Naomi. Maybe she's back. And so here she comes, and everybody gathers around. Naomi, it's so good to see you. How are you doing? And she's saying, don't call me Naomi. That's not my name anymore. Call me Mara. I'm very bitter about what has happened in the past. And notice what she says. She said, I left out full, and I came back empty. I came back with nothing. Now imagine Ruth standing right there thinking, hey, you didn't leave and come home empty. What about me? <laughs> I'm here, aren't I? I mean, I committed myself to you. I committed to following you. And, and, uh, but you're, you're saying that you, you were full before, and now that it's just me, you're, you're saying that you came back empty? I mean, imagine Ruth. We might think in, in, in our hearts and in our minds, uh, this was a mistake. Right? Wouldn't that thought come into our hearts and our minds? You know what? Maybe, maybe Naomi, yeah, she's had a tough life. Obviously, I've seen that. But I've had a tough life too. And I'm making these commitments as well. And, and she might easily be thinking, well, you're not the only one here in this situation. I've left everything behind as well. And you can obviously see in Naomi that her bitterness blinds her to seeing other people around her their commitments, their faithfulness, their loyalty, all that Ruth is doing for her. And it would have been very easy for Ruth to just turn around and say, you know what, maybe, maybe this isn't the right thing to do. Maybe I should have just gone back home. 
but I think that we praise godly mothers for their steadfast loyalty. I read about uh, Netflix and the work culture that they have. They have a very unique kind of work culture. Um, some of you may work in a business or industry where you'll know about uh, some companies, they have unlimited uh, vacation days. And, uh, you know, it's, it sounds like ideal, but there's some complications there and, you know, politics there. But, you know, uh, Netflix was the company that started that. They said, if our people are great people, they're driven and they're successful and they're considerate of their coworkers, then we can give them as much time as they need. They have a lot of flexibility. That, that, that's the company that started all of that. So Netflix is, they've got a very unique kind of culture. And one of their big philosophies is we only want the very best people here. And we will pay top of the pay grade to anybody that is here. All right. So anytime there is a, a shift in, you know, kind of demand, then they're willing to give raises, big raises in order to keep the people here. And uh, they also have the flip side of that is if there is somebody who is maybe not what they would consider the best, then they will let them go. All right. They, they, they'll just say, you know what, we'll give you a big severance. You can go find work at another company and we're just going to we're going to let you go. And the way that they determine who they keep and who they let go is what they call the keeper test. There's a keeper test that they have. It's kind of their uh, frame of reference for who to keep and who to let go. And the situation is this. Let's say uh, employee A, somebody who works for you, comes to you and says, I'm planning on getting another job at this company. I've been uh, offered a position over there and I'm planning on leaving. The keeper test is this. The keeper test is how hard would you fight to keep them in your group? All right. And if the answer was, I would work very hard to keep them in my group, then that's a keeper and you pay them so that they'll stay with you. If the answer is, I'm, I don't know how hard I would work in order to keep you or how hard I would try to convince you to stay, then you could just let them go right away. You don't have to wait for them to get an offer. You could just say, you know what, uh, maybe this place isn't for you and uh, here's your severance, go move on. You can find a, a different company. And uh, maybe some people might be attracted to that, but I'm very glad that godly mothers don't think this way. That godly mothers don't have keeper tests that they don't think about their kids in that kind of way, that mothers fight for every one of their children and praise the Lord for that. Now you look at a company like Netflix and everybody's like, wow, look at this company. Look how it's growing. I wish I had stock in that company. I wish I were working there. That's the kind of company that would get celebrated in the news and in our culture, but that's not the way that godly mothers think. They don't think that way and praise the Lord for that. We also see that Ruth was a spiritual leader. Now, this trait doesn't really make sense with regards to Ruth because, well, Ruth is a Moabite. In Moab, they didn't worship God. They didn't follow God. They didn't read the word of God. They didn't offer sacrifices to God. And yet we see in Ruth that she is the spiritual leader. In fact, when we see Naomi and Ruth together, we see opposite directions from what you would expect. Naomi is an Israelite. She should try to be drawing people to the Lord. But when she had the opportunity with Orpah and Ruth, what did she say? She said, go back home and go back to your gods. Just go back home and worship the gods that you're familiar with. That's the opposite of what you would expect somebody from Israel to say. You should worship the real God, the Lord God. 
And, but that's the opposite. And Ruth says the opposite. Instead of saying, yeah, this, these are my gods, I'm going to worship them. Instead, she says, your God is going to be my God. You know, you could see that leadership in her life that she's saying, oh, don't ask me to do that. I want to worship the true God. And don't ask me to leave. I want to follow that true God. And so she says, thy people shall be my people, thy God, my God. In chapter number two and verse number 12, we see that Boaz is speaking uh, about uh, Ruth. And it says, and, she, and, and he says, the Lord recompense thy work and a full reward be given thee of the Lord God of Israel under whose wing thou art come to trust. The Christian life is a life about faith. It's about trusting the Lord. It's not about living by sight. It's not about living by the things that we can see in front of our eyes. It's about just going to the Lord, asking God for direction, and just saying, you know what? I can't put every step on the road where I can see where every step needs to be taken, but I'm going to follow you and trust you because this is what you have said, or this is the direction that you have given. And that's the life of Ruth, that she has committed herself to following the Lord and to being a blessing to others. And one more verse uh, here in chapter number one, just to kind of emphasize the point. When Naomi comes back to Israel, um, the people say, oh, it's Naomi. And she says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, because I'm bitter about what's happened. I lost my husband. I lost my two sons. She said, call me not Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. She's bitter against God for what has happened in her life. Now, it's not God's fault, right? They were the ones that left the land of Israel. They were the ones that had been gone, and now she is back. But that's the way that she feels. In chapter 2, in verse number 20, it says, And Naomi said unto her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he of the Lord who hath not left off his kindness to the living and to the dead. You see that Ruth, just by faithfully doing what she was called to do, was a blessing in turning the eyes of Naomi from her own suffering and her bitterness to the goodness of God. And that's what Ruth was able to do. She was able to take people's eyes off of that thing that was in her life that was a hang-up, that suffering in the life of Naomi, that trouble, the, the difficulties in, the, in her past, and, and be able to turn her eyes onto the goodness of the Lord. What a wonderful trait that we find in Ruth. We also see that she was a self-starting laborer. In chapter 2, verse number 1, And Naomi had a kinsman of her husband's, a mighty man of wealth and of the family of Elimelech, and his name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said unto Naomi, Let me now go to the field and glean ears of corn after him in whose sight I shall find grace. And she said unto her, Go, my daughter. You'll notice in Ruth that she wasn't waiting around for somebody to tell her what to do. She wanted to get started and get out there and get, get going. She wanted to do something. She wanted to be there for the family. And notice that she gets out there and she gleans. So to understand the culture of what is going on with her, she obviously has land, but it hasn't been cultivated. There's no crops, there's no harvest, there's nothing for them to eat. So in a situation like hers, uh, uh, God gave some commands in the Bible for how to help these people. So people like Boaz had land. And they would plow the field, they would sow the seed, they would see the harvest, 
And at harvest time, they would bring in all of the crops. But there were very particular rules that they were to follow by. And here are the rules. Here are some of the rules, at least. One of the rules is, as you go out to harvest, now they didn't have combine machines, you had to do this by hand. So you would hire people, they would go out into the field, they would take like knives and sickles and things like that, and they would basically cut the wheat and they would put it like in a basket or a bushel or something, and they would just continually cut, put it in, cut, put it in, cut, put it in, and then when it was full, they would bring it back into the barn, put it there or wherever, and they would process you know, the food, get rid of all of the other stuff, keep the wheat, and and uh, that's how they would work. But one of the rules was if you cut something and it slips out of your hand, you're not allowed to pick it up again. Okay? If you drop it, it's there on the ground. Okay? No five second rule. Okay? <laughs> All right? If it falls, it falls, and that's where it is. Okay? So there's just random pieces of wheat here on the ground, here and there. Uh, the other rule was, as you get to the corners of the field, you're not allowed to go all the way into the corner. You were to round off the corner, okay? So you can imagine this field, as the people go out to harvest, that they harvest most of the field, but the corners are rounded. There's these, you know, wheat still there in the corners. And then there's random pieces of wheat that may have fallen from somebody's basket uh, as they were bringing it in, as they were cutting, it slipped from their hand, or they tripped and fell, whatever the case might be. So God would provide for individuals like Ruth who are widows that would say, okay, so what you can do then is you go out into these fields and whatever is there is what you can harvest and you can bring in. That was called gleaning. Okay, so they would glean the harvest, they would pick up the wheat from the ground that they would find, they would go off into the corners and, and harvest that wheat. That was how they survived. But there is something very particular to know, which is that gleaning was not a very noble work, right? Because gleaning meant that you didn't have a harvest of your own. It meant that you were dependent upon somebody else. It meant that there was some tragedy in your life. You lost your husband or something like that, you know? Uh, and so it was not exactly a very noble kind of work. It would have been much more noble to get out there and to be able to harvest your own field. But here is Ruth going out there, doing the ba basic, humble work of gleaning. And not only that, she works hard at doing it. In chapter number two, verse number seven, it says, so she came and had continued even from the morning until now that she tarried a little in the house. So she got up early, got out there at sunrise and was gleaning all day long until the sun set. And in chapter two, verse number 17, it says, so she gleaned in the field until even and beat out that she had gleaned and it was about an ephah of barley. So she gets out there, she harvests everything in, she beats out all of the barley that comes out, throws away all of the chaff and the stalks and things, and then puts all of the food into this little container. It's about an ephah of barley. And she does this day after day after day. This is what people are noticing about her, that she started the work and she finished the job and that's what godly mothers do. They get up early, they get started, they work until the job is done. We see fourthly that she was supremely loving. In chapter number four, when the ladies are talking about Naomi and this baby Obed that was born, the Bible says that they said in verse number 14, blessed be the Lord which hath not left thee this day without a kinsman, that his name may be famous in Israel, and he shall be unto thee a restorer of thy life, 
and a nourisher of thine old age for thy daughter-in-law, which is Ruth, Ruth, which loveth thee. We see the special love of Ruth to Naomi. This was a special kind of a love, a greater kind of a love, because everybody recognized that this woman is special, and the kind of love that she had for her mother-in-law was special. Fifthly and lastly, we see that she was submissively listening. In chapter 2, we see that Naomi has this interaction with her mother-in-law, and she says, this is what happened. And Naomi said, that's great. Just keep going into the field. In verse 22, it is good, my daughter, that thou go out with this maidens, that they, may, that, that they meet thee not in another field. So she kept fast by the maidens of Boaz to glean unto the end of barley harvest. She just heard what her mother-in-law said. Later, she heard what Boaz said, and she just did what she was told. And now I know that in our culture, that's not very looked highly upon. You should be your own boss. You should be the one telling other people what to do. And, and that's what's celebrating them. That's what's uplifted. But you know what? I praise the Lord for godly mothers that simply desire to follow God and to hear him and to, uh, to listen to others. I love what Boaz says about Ruth in chapter number three, verse number 11. He says, and now my daughter, fear not. I will do to thee all that thou requires, for all the city of my people doth know that thou art a virtuous woman. This word for virtue was often used to mean strong. She was a strong woman. She was a dedicated woman. She was a working woman. She was somebody who loved. And the world thinks that strength might be money or power or success. But I think godly mothers show that Strength is often in just being steadfastly loyal, in spiritual leadership. Sometimes it's found in just listening. And so we praise the Lord and celebrate mothers for their overlooked characteristics. Thirdly and lastly, we see that we can celebrate godly mothers because they make outstanding contributions. Chapter number four is where we started, and I want you to turn there with me. Chapter number four and verse number 13. Boaz took Ruth and she was his wife. And when he went in unto her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bare a son. She has a son, praise the Lord. And the woman said unto Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, which hath not left thee this day without a kinsman, that his name may be famous in Israel. And he shall be unto thee a restorer of thy life, and a nourisher of thine old age. For thy daughter-in-law, which loveth thee, which is better to thee than seven sons, hath borne him. And Naomi took the child, and laid it in her bosom, and became nurse unto him. And the woman... And the woman, her neighbors, gave it a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed. All right? This is a very unique situation where there's a child that is born, and the women, the neighbors, the friends are the ones that named the baby Obed. Now, that's a little unusual to me. I have a child on the way, and uh, my wife and I were thinking of names to name our child. And uh, some people might have some ideas of what they should name the child. But I and my wife, my wife and I, we get to name the child. It would be a little strange if we took a poll of all of you and said, what do you think we should name our child? And whatever is most popular is the name that we will name our child. Uh, that would be a little strange. I would think that's a little strange, but it almost seems that way. And so there his name is Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. 
Now these are the generations of Pharaohs. Pharaohs begat Hezron, and Hezron begat Ram, and Ram begat Aminadab, and Aminadab begat Nashon, and Nashon begat Salmon, and Salmon begat Boaz, and Boaz begat Obed, and Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David. The book begins with Naomi and ends with David, and in the middle of it all, we see Ruth. David is a wonderful outcome of the life of Ruth. It's no coincidence that the book ends with the name David. It didn't end with Ruth when she died. It didn't end with Ruth. And I'm sure she had other kids. That these other kids, they made sure to mention, oh, I want, you to let, I want you to know how important Ruth is. I want you to know how special Ruth is. Because Ruth had a son whose name was Obed. Obed's son was Jesse. And Jesse's son was David. David is a special man. He is a man of God, somebody who loved the Lord. And when you just consider the life of David, I think, you know, we can't put two and two together and see Ruth's influence on her family and how David ended up. But I think you see some similar character traits that David was willing to do the humble work just to get out there. David was the one who went out there to fight Goliath. He was the one with strength and courage. He was the one who was faithful and loving to Saul, even when Saul was not that to him. And you see these wonderful character traits. And I think the Bible is saying, you know where he got that from? He got that from his great-grandmother, Ruth. Some wonderful things in the life of Ruth that led to the life of David. And especially true for those of us who live here today, David is a special name because he is a picture in the Old Testament of our Savior, Jesus Christ. He is a picture, even here in the book of, of Ruth, Boaz is also a picture of the Lord in being the Redeemer. And if you're here today and you're saved, you have trusted Christ as your Savior, you have been redeemed from sin. You have been bought back from the bondage of sin and you are free in the Lord. You have salvation, you have eternal life. And if there's any gift that a godly mother could give to their child, there's no greater gift than the gift of the gospel. For all of us to know that all of us are sinners, even your wonderful children. We love our children. I love my kids, but I know that my kids are sinners, just like I'm a sinner, and just like you're a sinner, and that they need to be saved for themselves. I cannot save them. Their mother cannot save them. Their friends cannot save them. Their church cannot save them. Only Jesus Christ can save them. Only a full trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was the Son of God, who lived a sinless, perfect life, who died, was buried, and rose again as proof that he was the Lord, that he has victory over sin and death, can save you. If there's somebody here today that is not saved, today could be the day that you could be saved, that you could trust Christ as your Savior and know that heaven is your home. If anything, that is the legacy of Ruth, that she was there a part of this lineage that led to not only David, but eventually to Jesus Christ.